If you've got your Bibles, we're going this morning to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the second half, so finishing up John chapter 14. Uh, and I wanted to take a moment to give you a little bit of the setting for the story, the setting that really we've been in for the last couple of weeks' sermons. We're in what is often referred to as the upper room discourse, or the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in the upper room. This is an extended conversation. We saw last week, and you'll notice it this week, Jesus' disciples actually interrupt the speech that he's making to ask questions. It gives you a sense of their familiarity, comfort with Jesus. That even as he's speaking, they bring their concerns and questions to him, and he addresses them. But this is all taking place on the night in which Jesus would be betrayed. Here he is with those disciples, his closest followers in that upper room, talking and discussing and answering questions about what lay ahead in many ways over the next few hours. Jesus had already informed them that the one who would betray him was in their midst, that it would happen soon. He had explained that he was about to be raised up, that he must suffer and die, and that where he was going, they would not be able to follow him. It's not hard, as we pointed out last week, to imagine how this unnerved the disciples. Those who had been with Jesus for several years, who had given up everything to follow Jesus, all of a sudden found themselves with this realization that he might no longer be with them, and just hours away from it. Jesus turned to those concerns they had, and as we saw it last week, began chapter 14 by saying, Do not let your hearts be troubled. But Jesus also gave them something to remember. We looked at those tools, as I called them last week, these images that Jesus offered them for doing this work, for quieting their hearts, for holding on to the peace that he offered. Those images we looked at last week was this image of a heavenly home in which Jesus went to prepare rooms for them, that they were adopted into God's family, had a place secured by him there. The second of those images was the way, the way in which they had followed Jesus, this path, this road, which they had been on with Jesus for some time. And the third was this anticipation, this image that they would witness and participate in things greater than he had done. Now, I offered you that list last week as what I said were tools, that when you find your own heart troubled or you find yourself in some moment of discouragement, these are resources for you as they were for those disciples to dwell on that heavenly place prepared for you, to think about the way in which Jesus has taught you to follow, the way that he lays out before you, and that anticipation that greater things are to come, to be done, you a participant in them. But to end last week's sermon without this week's sermon, in many ways would be to miss what I think for Jesus is the true offer, the greatest offer that he gives to those disciples. In some ways, I could make a whole point out of this for this sermon, but let me say it before we read the passage. Um, One of the remarkable things about the Christian faith is it is not just putting all of your hopes and expectations in some advice or some steps or some suggestions that you could implement. The hope that Jesus offered his disciples was not in their own ability to pull themselves together and quiet down their own heart. As if the Christian faith was some advice that you could implement to get your life going back on track. So many of the religious systems are like that. Both the explicitly religious, but even the non-religious systems that this world offers you as advice for living well. If you have a troubled heart, the world offers you all sorts of ways of dealing with it. For a long time, our culture's answer to this troubled heart, this feeling of anxiety, was self-esteem. 
You simply needed to believe in yourself more, love yourself more, and you could quiet that troubled brewing within. Today's advice, the culture's advice for today, goes something more like this. Something in you, the reason you're feeling this troubled heart, is because something in you is being kept down. Something in you is being oppressed. Some authority or some relationship or some social group is keeping you from expressing truth. And you won't find true peace until you learn to speak your truth. Your heart is troubled because your true self is being held down. And until you stand up to those limiting traditions and expectations of others, you won't have the peace of being who you authentically are in the world. So the way the culture gives you the advice is express yourself. Be your truest, authentic self, no matter what it costs you, no matter who's opposed to it. And that's the path to finally finding this inner peace, this inner resolve. Now, the thing is, what all of that has in common is it puts the pressure back on you. Inner peace is something you have to work out, something you have to accomplish, something you have to stand up for yourself to receive. The task is yours. Figure it out. You have to figure out what it is you want and who's keeping you from it and what you need to do to take it back for yourself. You carry the burden of action. In many ways, it would be easy to read Jesus' command, don't let your heart be troubled, and even to take up these images, here's what I need to dwell on, three pictures, and to turn it into that same kind of advice, the action that I need to take. When I feel myself troubled, my spirit wrestling, here are tools that I can leverage to fix it. A room, a way, greater things still to come. I can do this. I'll apply these tools. I'll put in place these steps, and I can make my heart no longer troubled. But Jesus doesn't teach his disciples some technique by which they could master their own hearts, by which they could heal their own wounds. What he says in the rest of chapter 14 is that when he leaves, he will send another to help them. That what they need most is not a technique by which they master their own hearts, but a person who will come and walk with them and counsel them and guide them and lead them into this work. He does that in the rest of John chapter 14. I want to read it to you. We're going to start reading in verse 15, and we'll be reading through the end of the chapter. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Jesus said to those disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, and John interjects, not Iscariot, not the one who's about to betray him, but another Judas. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. With that, Jesus begins the move towards what will be his arrest, his crucifixion, his death. Jesus concludes this little conversation, it'll actually carry on to the next two chapters, but there, that upper room conversation, with this promise that another was coming to help them. What I want to look at this morning are a couple of questions. Who is this helper that Jesus is describing? One will come to help you. And what is it that this helper will do when he does come? And maybe the most important question of all is, what does it mean for us? How is this promise of Jesus a help to us when our hearts are troubled like the disciples? Who is this helper? What does this helper do? And how does he help us? Jesus explicitly tells us that this helper that is to come is the Holy Spirit. And so far in John's gospel, we haven't had a very long conversation about the Holy Spirit. In fact, John has only mentioned the Holy Spirit one other time, and it's in chapter one in what is really the introduction to the book. The Holy Spirit hasn't been a prominent part of John's gospel up until this point in chapter 14. And all of a sudden, with Jesus turning his attention to this promise, the Holy Spirit will come. He will be a help to you. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit becomes a central part of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You're going to find it all over these next few chapters, this final conversation that Jesus has with them. He's here, as Jesus says, to be a help to you when I am gone. Now, if you've been familiar with this passage or this promise, there's probably a lot of words. Some of you who may have different translations than I'm reading will have recognized lots of words get used for this idea of the helper. Uh, some of you might even be familiar with the Greek word that's used here, paraclete. Maybe you've heard it before. Sometimes that word gets described as an advocate, an advocate will come. Or sometimes it's translated as a comforter, the comforter will come. Here in the ESV, it's the helper will come. The reason that word gets translated in so many different ways is because it's a hard word to replicate with one word in English. It has a kind of impact to it when Jesus says, a helper will come. And if we chose to sort of give a paragraph of explanation for what the word means, it kind of ruins the moment, right? Jesus is trying to say something they'll remember. The paraclete comes. That word literally means, paraclete, one who has been called alongside, para, like uh, parentheses or parameter, has this idea of alongside. 
the paraclete is one who has been sent, who has been called to be alongside of us. But it also has, in its Greek usage, a defense uh, trial kind of association. In other words, you might speak of a paraclete, one called alongside, as someone who in a trial would come alongside the accused person and speak in their defense. One way of thinking about the word is it might be in some way like our modern defense attorney, a person who could come along and help articulate a case or defend a person in a courtroom. But Jesus uses it here in ways that are beyond just a legal person, a legal defense. Jesus specifically says he's bringing this helper, sending this helper to them, because verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus pushes that language into this relational place of being adopted in, family. You get why you have all of these various words trying to capture it. There is a kind of legal component. The advocate will come. There is a kind of personal component. The comforter will come. And oftentimes, they've sort of given up and said, we'll call it a helper and let the pastor who's preaching the sermon unpack the Greek word to you. That's what happens in this one. The helper will come. You get a sense, though, of what Jesus is getting at with this word. The disciples find themselves unnerved by the fact that Jesus is leaving them. So Jesus promises to send one who has been called alongside them, one who will come to their aid, who will assist them, who will be a comforter and an advocate and a help. Let me give you a little bit of an image that I found helpful. Um, One of Ashley and I's favorite TV shows is a BBC murder mystery called Father Brown. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's an older show. We like the earliest seasons the best. Um, The uh, main character, Father Brown, is based on a G.K. Chesterton, a Christian writer character from one of his fictionary works. And every week, it's one of those shows where there's a murder at the center of the plot. Uh, It all plays out in this small British town. I don't know how there's anybody left living after two seasons. But somehow, this Father Brown, this Catholic priest in the middle of this small town, every week finds himself caught up in the middle of this unsolved mystery. And usually, he's the one who cracks the case and solves the crime and figures it out. One of the narratives that's often in those episodes is a person who's been falsely accused or is falsely assumed to be a part of the murder, or maybe somebody who's in jail and been arrested but can't confess to it, can't repent of what they've been a part of. And one of those recurring scenes is Father Brown, this priest, who goes into this prison cell alone with this person. They're allowed, permitted in, to give spiritual counsel to the person that's been arrested. No one else dares associate with that accused person, but Father Brown goes in and sits down on the bench in the prison cell and begins to offer counsel to that person in that moment of need. Sometimes he leaves and acts on their behalf or pulls strings or tries to solve the case and exonerate their name. Sometimes he simply encourages them and holds out the opportunity of heavenly forgiveness and repentance. I like that image because usually the two people end up setting Father Brown and the accused side by side on this bench in that prison cell. It's a good image of this being called alongside. A person in a time of need with a troubled heart steps in and begins to give counsel and advocate and comfort and help. I think that image is helpful because to really understand what Jesus is describing when he describes the Holy Spirit coming as a helper, you have to understand what it is the Holy Spirit is meant, in Jesus' words, to do when he gets here. Elsewhere, Jesus had said that when he went to heaven, he would be our advocate. In fact, Jesus uses the same word, paraclete, to describe himself when he is in heaven before God. 
Jesus goes to the throne room where God is seated as an eternal judge, and there Jesus is our advocate, the one speaking in our defense. So John, who writes this gospel, writes in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, same word, paraclete, before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In other words, what John is saying is that we have this helper in heaven before the eternal judge, before God. Jesus goes and argues in our defense. Or as Jesus says elsewhere in his gospel, he goes to intercede for us, to plead our case before God. So now we read Jesus, who sees himself as that paraclete before God, saying that when he goes to do that work in our behalf, he will send another paraclete, a helper, here to earth to be with us when we are in trouble. He'll send a paraclete, a helper, a comforter, an advocate, the Holy Spirit. So whatever this legal language of advocate is, Jesus is that advocate before the heavenly judge, God. So what is this advocacy, this work, this defense that the Holy Spirit does when he is here with us? Jesus says something really interesting in verse 19 about this. He says to his disciples, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He informs the disciples that in really what will be just a few hours, he will be gone from the world. All of the power structures and systems of those religious leaders and Rome will think that they've done Jesus away with, placed him in the ground, rolled the stone over, no more to hear or to see or to deal with this Jesus problem. But Jesus says that his disciples will see him. Now that prompts a question from the disciples. We're specifically told that Judas, who is not Judas Iscariot, asks Jesus a a question. Um, A little bit of a side note here. I think it's interesting that this is specifically Judas and that John interrupts the story to remind us it's not Judas Iscariot, the one who's betraying him. If this was a conversation that John was completely fabricating, if John was sort of just making stuff up about Jesus or trying to build a religion around Jesus, most writers would have enough sense not to put two characters with the same name and the same story to confuse people who are reading. You would get two different names to make it really clear. The fact that John has this detail in there and feels the need to put a parenthetical note that these are the same name but two different people, strikes me as something that gives it a lot of credibility and authenticity. It seems like the kind of thing John is forced to do by the actual facts that happened rather than something that a writer would make up. Total side note, but I thought I'd throw it out. Judas has a follow-up question to all of this talk about how the world will not see Jesus, but his disciples will. And it's a pretty logical question. Judas says to him, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? Manifest, reveal is the word. How will you show yourself to us and not to the world? So his question is, how is this possible that we will see you, but nobody else in the world will see you? He's thinking very literally. How is it you can be with us, but not be with the world? Jesus answers by saying a couple of things. First of all, he says that if you love God and seek to obey The Father will make his home in you. If you've been with us through our look at the Gospel of John, you should recognize that as temple language. God's dwelling place, the home, the presence of God, his house, that that presence of God, that dwelling place of God, will no longer be in the temple, the house of God, the physical temple, 
But that once Jesus leaves, the presence of God will make its way in to them. He will dwell in those who love him and obey him. The Holy Spirit will come so that God's presence will no longer be shut up in the Holy of Holies, but so that that presence might be with those who love him. And then Jesus adds a second thing, the way in which he will be with them and not in the world. He says that when the Helper comes, the Holy Spirit will do two things, will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that he had said. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you and he will remind you of Jesus' teaching. Here's what Jesus is getting at. When Jesus is gone, the world will look around and see no evidence of him. They won't see anything worth worrying about or following. What does it mean, Jesus? He's gone, buried. There's no evidence to the world of Jesus, his claim on this earth. But the disciples will find him manifested, revealed, very much still active and alive. And the way in which they will sense Jesus' active presence in this world will be how the Holy Spirit makes Jesus known and present to them. The presence dwelling in them, the Holy Spirit reminding them of Jesus' teaching and his way. I want to give you a good working definition for what it is Jesus says the Holy Spirit does. Because it strikes me, as it probably does you, that any time we start talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, we too often relegate it to those places of mystical and confusing, uh, as if it was some secret that was held by some select people. But Jesus goes so far as to basically give us a list of what it is the Holy Spirit is sent to do within believers, those who love and are seeking to obey. Jesus is very clear, in my opinion, that what the Holy Spirit's task will be when he is gone is to make Christ present and manifest to those who love him. Everything that the Spirit will seek to do will be about making Jesus' presence present to us in life. Let me say that one more time. The Holy Spirit's task, the reason that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be sent and will come to us, is so that Christ's presence might be present to us in our own day. And Jesus says the world will not see him, won't recognize him, but those who love him by the power of the Holy Spirit will sense his presence, will sense him dwelling with them, and will be reminded and taught by the Holy Spirit how to continue following You know, the Apostle Paul, uh, later on in his letters to the Corinthians, dealt with a unique problem. The Corinthian church was uh, basically obsessed with all things spiritual, as they would put it, all things Holy Spirit. Paul started to see ways in which it was going completely off the rails. And the real challenge that Paul had with the Corinthians was to do two things. To pull back in the excesses that he saw taking place there, but to do it in such a way that he didn't quelch everything the Holy Spirit was doing. Uh, as if the Holy Spirit was kind of an on-off switch. They had turned it on, and he sought to turn it back off. No, he was trying to bring them back to the purpose for which the Holy Spirit was at work in their midst. And Paul uses what I think is a word that in many ways he creates. It's an existing word, but he uses it in ways that are unconventional. The word he uses will be familiar, charismata. We get our word charismatics from it. So a charismatic person, charisma, which is this word Paul's using. Oftentimes he gets translated as gifts. Gifts of the Spirit. Charismata means the gifts. Paul's writing about it all over to the Corinthians. But that word charismata has its root in this word charis, which simply means grace. 
Uh, To put it really simply, Paul repositions the spiritual gifts, the spiritual things they were experiencing, as gifts of grace, tangible expressions of grace that are being experienced within the church. What Paul was trying to articulate was that all of the spiritual things happening in their congregation, it was not just about special power or special insight. It was all tangible expressions of grace. It was tangible expressions of Jesus' grace at work in their midst. It wasn't about somebody having a certain power or somebody having a special ability. It was about the way in which the Holy Spirit was making Jesus present manifest to them in their worship. For Paul, he says that where we are gathered together, where we worship together, we should anticipate the Holy Spirit working to make Christ real and alive in our worship. In John, he promises them that they will see even greater things. That's where we ended last week. Remember his promise to the disciples? You will do even greater things than I have done, he says to them. The next thing Jesus says is, so I am sending you the Holy Spirit as a helper. Jesus healed, and so it's not surprising to see in the New Testament that there is a spiritual grace, a manifestation of his presence in healing. Jesus had insights into people's hearts and lives, and so it's not surprising that the New Testament writers speak of this tangible experience, this spiritual grace of insight. Jesus had done many miracles, and so too we read throughout the book of Acts and into their letters these New Testament writers speaking of a way Jesus manifests his presence in miracles through the Holy Spirit. It's one big way of saying that though Jesus leaves, his disciples should not find themselves terrified or afraid, for he promises that his presence and his work will be revealed through the work of the Holy Spirit in them. But a big part of that is that the Holy Spirit will also teach, will remind, will lead. It's not as if the Holy Spirit is just sort of dumped on them and everything begins happening around them. Sometimes the work of the Holy Spirit is to pull back or to speak a word of conviction or to remind us of something that we have forgotten. The Spirit, as it turns out, does argue like an attorney. It is an advocate. But he doesn't plead our case like Jesus does before God. He doesn't plead our case before some judge. The Spirit comes and pleads our case to us. He's a kind of legal counselor who comes and reminds us and speaks wisdom to us and articulates to us what we once knew but had forgot. I mean, hear what Jesus says. When he comes, he'll teach you and he'll remind you of the things that I said. One of my favorite episodes of that Father Brown show, there's a young man who's falsely accused of murder. He had nothing to do with the murder, but all of the evidence points to him, and because he was already a sort of ostracized and strange character in the town, he becomes a quick and easy target and scapegoat. Everyone in the town is convinced that he's the murderer, open and shut case, nothing left to be said. Father Brown isn't one of those people and believes that there's more going on The date of his execution is quickly approaching, and Father Brown makes it his personal ambition to solve the case and exonerate this young man. At one point, Father Brown goes to visit him. He sets down with the man who at the beginning had been adamant that he was innocent, but now, as his case seems more and more hopeless, has sort of resigned himself to this inevitable end. 
There's Father Brown sitting beside him in the midst of this hopeless prison cell. And what's a moving and telling conversation, Father Brown begins to encourage him. Do not lose your faith. Trust. Believe. God is on your side. He tries to speak back into him hope. My guess is most of you have probably not been in a situation that dire, sitting with an execution order over you in a prison cell. I guess the truth is I don't know all of your history, so maybe some of you have spent some nights in some prison cells. I shouldn't speak so declaratively. But all of us know what it is to be in a moment of dark hopelessness, to be sitting on a bench somewhere and feel like everything that we thought we understood and knew and trusted had collapsed and fallen down around us. We know what it is to feel hopeless. We know what it is to feel like this world is stacked against us. We know what it is to feel our faith falter, to feel like whatever that faith was we once possessed might have actually just been naive, that it might have been silly, that maybe after all the world doesn't work like I thought, that maybe God isn't doing what I thought. You know what it is to talk about Jesus in the world and yet feel in your heart maybe he's not present, maybe this isn't his world, maybe this kingdom isn't here. The world sees that faith as a crutch, a superstition for the weak, naive. Where is Jesus in all of the confusion and the darkness and the suffering? Where is Jesus in a church that these days seems more prone to scandal and abuse and collapse and power and resurrection life? Where is Jesus in a nation that feels like it's constantly fractured and torched at every turn? Where is Jesus in what feels like so long since revival or fresh moves of the Spirit? The truth is, we hit moments where it's hard to keep on believing. What Jesus says to those disciples in a very similar night, a dark night in which their faith faltered, in which Peter would find himself denying even knowing Jesus, what he says to those disciples who inherited a world that had come to the conclusion Jesus had been done away with, who saw no evidence of Jesus. Jesus says to them, I am sending one who is called to be alongside you, who will dwell in you, who will make God's presence real to you, who will teach you, and who will remind you of the words that I have spoken to you. I'm sending you one to argue with you, to reason with you, to push you and prompt you to believe when you find your own belief falter, to speak hope when you feel most hopeless, that there is a kingdom, that there is a true church, that there is hope, a spirit at work in this world, redeeming and restoring. There is grace tangible for you to experience, miracles breaking into this world. When you find yourself in one of those moments When your heart is troubled and this little list of tools that I've used before and techniques to get my heart calmed down seem to fail, Jesus says you will not be left alone. One will come to push back, to advocate, to argue, and to plead. Where Jesus doesn't seem at all real, where the pressure of life seems more real to you than he does, The Spirit goes about his work, drawing you back, teaching you, reminding you, helping you experience his manifest presence once again, walking with you beside you, 
answering questions, just as Jesus had done with those disciples. The result of it is this. How does it help us? Jesus says in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. What the Spirit offers you is peace. Wholeness when things feel broken. Courage when you find yourself faltering in it. Comfort when all the world is produced as trouble. Life when you find yourself facing death. Peace, Jesus says, is what I leave you with. He goes on to say something else in verse 27 after that. That this peace is not as the world gives. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Jesus says. That's where we started this conversation about what it is the Holy Spirit came to do. This peace that the Comforter brings, this faith that the Holy Spirit builds, is not like the advice of this world. What the Holy Spirit offers you is not just an alternative set of advice from the advice that the world does. What Jesus offers you is something altogether different than what the world does. It isn't like the world's self-help projects. It isn't like the world's to-do lists. What the Holy Spirit offers is not a book to read or a lecture to listen to, but the Holy Spirit is a person, a presence, a personal experience sent by Jesus to fill in in his absence, God dwelling in you, Jesus manifest in you. We speak of receiving this Holy Spirit or welcoming this Holy Spirit, not as a work we take up, not as a goal we set, but as we would welcome Jesus himself, as we would welcome the presence of God, a person. Come, Holy Spirit. Make Jesus real to me. Manifest his presence in my life. Show me how grace is real in the midst of this world. We don't seek to use the Holy Spirit. We don't seek to contain him or possess him for ourselves. We humbly submit ourselves to him. And we say to the Holy Spirit, push me when I need pushing. Argue with me when I need argument. Comfort me when I need comfort. Help me when I need help. Make Jesus alive and real to me in a world that does not see him. This, according to Jesus, is the way in which he cares for frightened disciples. It is the way in which Jesus cares for those who are frightened today, too. The Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, it's good that he would leave. It's good so that he might send this one, this advocate, this comforter, this helper. That to receive the Holy Spirit is to receive Christ in ways that him physically in this world couldn't have done. Jesus repeats his words a second time. So don't let your heart be troubled. You can do that work now, having heard everything that Jesus said, because you realize that is not a project or a goal that you have on your own shoulders. You can keep your heart from growing troubled simply because the Spirit is here to do it. You have Jesus made present and real to you by the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. There's an old Catholic prayer, just two lines, that was a prayer to the Holy Spirit that went like this. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Come, Holy Spirit, 
Make yourself present to those who are faithful, who love and follow, and kindle in us a fire of your love. Make your grace and presence manifest to us like a fire burning within us. One of those early Christian writers, Augustine, put it this way, his prayer to the Holy Spirit. Breathe in me, Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may be all holy. Act in me, Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, Holy Spirit, that I love what is holy. Strengthen me, Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. And guard me then, Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. His prayer to the Holy Spirit, breathe in me, act in me, draw my heart, strengthen me, and guard me. Put a fire of Christ's presence in me that you alone can do. I think those prayers are a good way for us to end. Come, make Jesus alive in our own hearts, but in our worship and in our midst. Set a fire in us. Manifest your teaching. Remind us of your grace and your truth. Lead us into a better holiness. Light a path before us and help us see you in a world that claims there's no evidence for you to feel your presence more real and more personal than anything in this world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we feel how easy it is to be overcome by this world. God, in moments of your insight, we recognize all of the ways that we pick up this world's advice, the way we live and act as if it's common sense. We know what it is to take this pressure on ourselves, to fix our own problems, to do things our way, to leverage even your spirit and your gifts for what we want. But this morning we come humbly before you like those frightened disciples saying, we don't know what to do with this world. We don't know how to fix it. We don't even know how we're supposed to live in the midst of it. We find ourselves overwhelmed and confused by the darkness of this place, as your disciples did on that night of your betrayal. And though we read your words, how quick our hearts are to forget it. So we pray that your spirit would come. That you would make yourself real and present to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Speak into our hearts words of encouragement where we are discouraged. Remind us of what we have in Christ's words that we have been too quick to forget. Comfort us. Advocate with us. Argue with us. Help us. So we humble ourselves this morning and we simply say, Holy Spirit, whatever it is we need, do it in our midst. Set a fire in our hearts to hunger more for your kingdom, for your will to be done, for your presence to be in us. We worship you this morning as a way of opening ourselves to what it is you seek to do, to the conversations you seek to have, to your words and teaching that you seek to again draw us back to and remind us of that our hearts might not be troubled, that we might find ourselves alive to your kingdom and presence here and now through the power of your Holy Spirit dwell in us, we pray.
it's in Jesus' name we pray.